So, let me pray for us before we begin, and we will get into the word of the Lord. Father, you are wonderful. You are God, and there is none other. You are the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And you are our refuge, God. You are everything to us. Thank you, Father, that you've called us to gather here in this place to give you honor and praise, to celebrate the coming of your precious Son. We thank you for your word. God, your word is sufficient for us. We rely on your word to nourish us, Father, to transform our hearts and our minds. And we ask that as we gather this morning that you would speak mightily to us, God, that you would meet us where we are and encourage us with your truth and the wonderful reality of the incarnation of your son that Christ took on flesh and became our lamb. He became the great sacrifice for us. We give you thanks and praise. Thank you for this body of believers, God, that you chose out of this world, that they would be holy and blameless before you. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Christmas. It's weird. It's a week away. It's tripping me out, but we'll just pretend like today is Christmas Day. It's a special time of year, as we know, for the church. It's also a special time of year for the entire country, for the most part. There are some folks that don't celebrate. For the most part, uh, most Americans do. Most Americans gather, and as a nation celebrates, um, I'm honestly not sure what exactly, uh, but we do celebrate it as a country. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen those keep, uh, what are they called, Keep Christ in Christmas, the, the bumper magnets. Have you guys seen those? Yeah? My mom used to have one on her car. It's pretty ironic, right, that we have to uh, contend for Christ in Christmas since the word is literally in there, right? You can't spell Christmas without Christ, and yet we have to be reminded to keep him in it. And by the way, guys, please forgive me. I don't mean to offend anybody, but I don't ever say Merry Christmas. It's very unnatural for me because I don't use the word Merry in my vocabulary. It just seems very forced. So I'll say all kinds of weird stuff to you. Don't take personal offense if I don't say Merry Christmas because uh, it's just odd. It's awkward for me. The word Merry is the only thing I can think of is Merry and Pippin from uh, Lord of the Rings. So anyway, uh, as you guys know, Christmas is a massive cultural holiday for us here in the United States. It's got its own movies and stories and traditions and so on. And as you've all probably seen from the movies that are popular this time of year, the ones that are probably coming to mind right now, there is a commonality amongst most of them. It is the spirit of Christmas, right? Spirit of Christmas, if you will. It's a major theme. The spirit of Christmas. What is the spirit of Christmas? What is the point underneath it all? It's idol worship. Just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, it is. And there is one specific idol that is worshipped above all this time of year. Can anybody venture a guess? It's a, okay, give me another one. It's a good thing. <laughs> Presents. Money. There it is. Okay, we got a few good idols in there, but number one is family, right? It's family. And the family is a beautiful thing. It is a God-given and precious gift. It's to be 
cherished and protected and cared for. We say a hearty amen to that. The Word of God agrees. The family is a precious thing, but family is not the unifying theme of Christmas, right? Or else it would be called family-ness. Yes? Right? It's not giving. It's not generosity. It's not resting. It's not new beginnings. It is not unexpectedly falling in love with your childhood neighbor who used to bully you but came back into town for a Christmas work trip whereby the relationship was rekindled. Right? (laughs) For you... Hallmark fans out there, I have seen a multitude of these films. I don't know if my mom's here this morning, but I've been, I've been subjected to dozens of these stories, and you don't even have to watch it, right? You already know how it plays out, but there's this sick part of our brain that just has, just has this curiosity, like, what if it doesn't work out, you know? And uh, yeah, that's not it. That is not it. Right? Okay. It's not just me. So (laughs) take a deep breath. Christmas uh, is generally recognized by the church as a celebration of the birth of Christ, right? The coming of the Messiah. It's not a biblical holiday per se in that it's not an ordinance for the church. It's certainly not a Jewish festival, right? It's a church tradition. You're not going to find in the pages of the New Testament, you know, the command to celebrate Christmas on December 25th, right? Uh, But Christmas comes historically from a season that the church has called Advent. Has anybody ever heard the word Advent before? Okay. So Advent. Advent means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. It's an arrival. And so we usually celebrate the arrival of Jesus in his humanity. That is the theme of Christmas. But From its inception, the celebration of Advent over the past 1,500 years or so uh, did not focus solely on the birth of Christ, or what we call the first Advent, but also celebrated the Advent which is to come, his return, the consummation of his victory in his first coming. And that, my friends, I know it would just be great to just do a good old traditional Christmas message, but... I always promised myself if I got this opportunity, I would do something else. So today, it's my hope that we will consider Christ in light of where we find ourselves in redemptive history. We are between resurrection and return. Now, I love Luke 2. I read it every year, right? The birth of Christ. I love it as much as the next person. But the baby in the manger is only... Let's call it a quarter of the story. Though Jesus Christ is the same always and forever, he has been revealed in different ways across time. We have the pre-incarnate Christ, the eternally begotten of the Father, the agent of all creation. He was present and active but veiled and predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. Then we have the virgin birth, right, which is what we usually cover at this time. We have the incarnation, the child king, the lamb of God. Then we have the man, Jesus, who lived out his earthly ministry, fulfilled God's law, accomplished salvation. And finally, we have the risen, exalted, and glorified Christ who rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father and who will return to claim his bride, his church, and will return 
to judge the world. So today we're going to take a look at the fullness of Jesus, and today we celebrate the Son of God and His coming, anticipated in the past, realized and remembered in the present, and anticipated again in the future. So we're going to be doing this by way of 1 Peter chapter 1. I should have had you guys open up there already. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1. And for you title folks, I've got a title for you, Advent, Rest and Anticipation. Rest and Anticipation. So we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, We'll be making our way from verse 8 through verse 13. Flippy, flippy, flippy. And later on, we'll be in Isaiah 53, and after that, we'll be in Revelation 21. So if you got a triple bookmark, go for it, or stick a prayer card in there or something. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. We'll be beginning, guys, with the outcome of Jesus' first coming, which is our salvation and our joy. And keep in mind as we make our way through these passages that Peter is writing to Christians who have been deeply grieved by trials. These are not guys that are cruising along and having a good old jolly old time under the mistletoe, okay? So verse 8, 1 Peter chapter 1, says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So this right here is the result of the condescension of Christ. Not that he was condescending, but that he condescended. This is the result of his leaving his heavenly perfect estate to become a man, to be born of a mortal woman, everlasting God born a child in a manger. If I'm going to get wild, I need to clear some space here. Everlasting God born as a human child in a manger. He crossed what one preacher said is the greatest distance between two objects. He said the distance from us to the farthest star in the solar system is nothing compared to the distance between the infinite creator and the finite creation. Jesus crossed that vast distance. The ruler of all the universe became a servant to his own creation. And that in itself should scramble our minds. And this is the result of his resolve, his unwavering commitment to the Father's will that we've been reading through in the book of John, This is the result of his humble obedience, even to the point of humiliation and death on a cross. This is the result of his steadfast love for his bride, that he would lay down his perfect life in the place of the very people who would mock and blaspheme and deny him. The result is that we now believe in him and love him because of his love for us. Because as verse 3 says, According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He came to bring dead bones to life through his death, 
And through simply believing his word, we now obtain, we now lay hold of eternal life. And blessed are those, we're told, who have not seen him and yet believe. Anybody in here ever seen Jesus before? Blessed are you. Because he has given us everything we need to trust him and thus to love him. Not having seen him physically, but having seen him in the Old Testament, having seen him in prophecy, having seen him in the pages of his word, having seen him transform our hearts and our minds, having seen him accomplish all that God promised that he would do. We see him, we believe in him, and we love him, our living hope by faith. And we rejoice in our salvation by faith and not by sight. We have not yet fully obtained that which has been promised to us. And praise God for that. As Paul says to the Corinthians, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, they're passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So because Jesus became our substitute as a man at his first coming and obeyed God's law for us and drank the cup of his wrath for us and rose from the grave, we believe in him and we love him. And Peter says, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I love that these realities that are conveyed to us in Scripture are so great that human words fail to capture them. Inexpressible. I'm going to ramble off some words here. Stick with me. The incomprehensible love of our Lord was displayed in unfathomable humility as he took on the form of a man, the form of a servant, which accomplished salvation through the inconceivable means of death and suffering of the perfect one. And he's now brought peace that surpasses all understanding and produces in us joy that is inexpressible. Do you see how weighty these things are? that our words cannot even express. Human language cannot convey the weight of the incarnation and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Human minds cannot hope to comprehend the depth of the evil of our own hearts. How much less can we hope to comprehend the grace and mercy of God in the incarnation? And so as we consider that which we cannot grasp, that God would save us at the cost of his own son's life and free us from our greatest enemy, death, and bless us with the perfection of the God-man, Jesus Christ. What else can we do, friends, family, but rejoice, amen? What else can we do but rejoice? Rejoice with a joy that is so deep and so profound that it transcends circumstances, it transcends Tribulation, it transcends suffering and grief and everything that we go through in this life. It is a joy that will last for all of eternity as we glory forever in what Jesus has done on our behalf. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, Paul says. Amen. Obtaining the outcome of faith 
the salvation of our souls. And what a great salvation it is, amen? What a great salvation. That is Christmas for you. Christ came. That's it. Christ came. But his coming, the coming of the Messiah, was no momentary whim of God. It wasn't an unplanned, unscheduled event. He didn't just close his eyes and point his finger on a day in the calendar and say, I think I'm going to send my son. Jesus didn't just show up on the scene out of nowhere claiming to be somebody and doing all kinds of magic tricks. He was greatly anticipated. He was anticipated. And this sets Jesus apart from every other so-called Savior. It sets him apart from every other historical figure that has ever set foot on earth. That his coming and his life were predicted from the beginning and long awaited. The advent of Christ was anticipated all the way from the garden to the moment of his miraculous conception. He was waited upon. Verse 10 of our passage says this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So this salvation that came with the advent of Christ was of such value and was such a great mystery that the prophets searched and inquired after it. Who would finally be this one that the Spirit had indicated? When would he come? How would he come? Who would he be? And they spent their lives pouring over God's word, seeking to understand what he had spoken through them by his Holy Spirit and the grace that is now ours. The grace that we now rest and rejoice in, they diligently looked ahead to with expectation and wonder and mystery. Who will be this deliverer? The one who the Spirit revealed would suffer, followed by glory. This was the way it had to be, suffering and then glory, and so it is for us. Suffering precedes glory in God's economy. Our Lord came to suffer on our behalf. He came to suffer greatly on our behalf. Genesis 3.15, God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It was promised first in the garden that the offspring of Eve would defeat the serpent, would overcome the devil and overturn the curse that Adam and Eve brought upon the world, but that he himself would be wounded in the process. From the very beginning, we know that the Savior is going to have to suffer. Isaiah says of him, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The great psalmist, King David, says that he would be forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And again, that he would be scorned and mocked. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And again, that he would be abandoned. 
Because all of my adversaries, I have become a, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. That they would plot against him to take his life, that he would be betrayed. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Isaiah speaks even so precisely by the Spirit, 500 years before Christ's coming, that God would turn the skies dark, that Christ would be beaten, that he would be ridiculed and spit on, and his beard ripped out. He says, I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah prophesied that he would be beaten beyond recognition. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And of course, the famous chapter 53, the suffering servant. If you have a bookmark there, Isaiah chapter 53, he says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Then the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Forgive me for referencing an entire chapter, but all of that suffering was destined for our Lord to take upon himself. We're told it was the will of God to crush him, to make him a guilt offering for transgressors. This was God's perfect and wise plan 
from eternity past, and it is beyond all our comprehension, all of our human wisdom. But at his coming, at his resurrection, and at his ascension, and his revelation to his apostles, we have beheld the subsequent glories that Peter speaks of. He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And what a privileged people we are that we have the Word of God through the prophets about Jesus confirmed to the letter. Look at this chapter from Isaiah. It's impossible to read this even to an unbeliever and ask, who do you think this is about? This is Christ. He has made himself openly revealed for us to now behold. The things that the prophets searched for, the promises and predictions of old, Jesus Christ, the fullness of everything that they looked for. They were looking for this great king, this great priest, this great prophet, this great meteor, this great sacrifice that the unfolding of all history has awaited. And he has come. And he has fulfilled, and he has received the honor that is due to his name. He endured the suffering, and we would lack time to pull out all the prophecies of the glory that was to follow. But the writer of the, to the Hebrews puts it this way, how Jesus finished his race and how we are to imitate his endurance. In chapter 12, he says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy before him? You. You. For the joy that was set before Christ, he endured all of these sufferings for his bride, for his church. And again, Philippians 2, verse 5, Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, the subsequent glories, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was the glory that awaited him, that was due to him because of his obedience, his humility, his suffering. And these are the glories that we are so blessed to have before our eyes in the pages of Scripture. In verse 12 of our passage, 1 Peter 1, verse 12, it was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the prophecies of their time, they served their purpose for those people in that time, in that place, in that context, 
but their true fulfillment has ultimately served those of us who live in this age, where we now look back at what they were looking forward to. They laid the foundation on which we now stand. And this salvation of man through Jesus Christ is so glorious and so mysterious that even sinless, mighty, powerful, angelic beings in God's very presence marvel at it. That is how shocking the humanity and the suffering of Christ is. That angels marvel at this reality that God would save man. And so we see that his coming was greatly longed for. It was a mystery that was greatly desired. It was foretold from the beginning. And it happened at the appointed time. And it happened exactly as God said it would. And we now stand in the light of the word made flesh. The fullness of his self-revelation to humanity. And we rejoice as we look back at his coming and what he did for us the sufferings, and the following glories. Verse 20 of our passage says this, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. But there is one more piece to the Advent story. Our joy and our hope rest not only in the finished work of Christ on earth, but in his promise to return and to make all things new. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember, whenever there's a therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what is the therefore, therefore? Therefore, therefore, because we have been born again, because there is an inheritance awaiting us in heaven, because God's power is guarding us in this world through faith, because we have certainty that Jesus came as the prophets by the Spirit said that he would, because true God became truly man, because he lived and fulfilled God's law and its requirements, because he suffered and died and was raised and redeemed us at the price of his own blood. That's what the therefore is there for. Peter says, therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope on the realities that will be finally fulfilled at his second coming, at his second advent. We need to be so often reminded of this, amen? That nothing should produce greater hope in us than his imminent return. We need to be reminded of this as often as we are distracted from it which is often. We need to be reminded, which is why Peter commands his readers, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Think. Think. There are going to be countless things that come into your eyes, your mind, your heart every single day that are going to draw your affections away from Christ and away from the hope of his coming, away from the hope of his return. And like beasts, 
Like drunkards, we wander off after these things, entangled by the passing cares of this world and of this life, things that are temporal, things that are transient, things that are passing away, things that are going to burn up like a candle before a flame. Our attention and our hope become spread across a multitude of avenues that all lead to nowhere. Vanity, emptiness, grasping at the wind, the preacher says. All is vanity apart from him. Peter says we've got to remove these impediments. We've got to shed these weights that we're carrying that hinder us from running toward Christ and setting our minds soberly on him and his return. Let us, again, as the writer of Hebrews says, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we wait for him, we must fix our hope on his coming. We must be vigilant. We must hold fast to Christ. We must be in community with each other all the more. A local church meeting together, encouraging one another, stirring one another up to love and good works because his return is absolutely as sure as he has already come. His return is as sure as the man Jesus lived and breathed on this earth. His return is as sure as we sit in this building right now. His return is sure. It is certain. The word of the Lord has spoken it, and it will come to pass. And it's easy for us to lose sight of this because we live in this world where grief and tribulation is ever-present. The first advent was foretold by the Holy Spirit through the prophets, and as surely as the Spirit spoke, he came, and now he has told us himself that he will return, and the grace of God, our salvation, will be made complete. Our hope will come to fruition at his appearing. Whether we live or die before he returns, he is our only hope. And he is, as Peter says, our living hope. Amen? He is alive. That's important. There is no hope in dead men. And dead men with great ideas about life and eternity have plagued us throughout all of history. And guess what happened to them? They died, and they stayed in the grave where they belong. There is no hope in dead men, and there is no hope in humanity. There is only hope and joy and rejoicing and rest in the risen God-man. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, it's worthless, and you're still in your sins. And then those also who have died in Christ have perished. They're gone. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus is just something that we add to our life to make it more bearable, we are the most pitiable people on earth because we are fools. We're hoping in something that can't deliver. We're hoping in something 
that is not real. Our hope is not here. It cannot be here. It is not in this life. It cannot be in this life. Our hope is then and there at his return when he brings all things to fruition. This may sound blasphemous, and please forgive me if it does, but I believe I say this in perfect agreement with Paul, that if our hope was only in the baby Jesus in the manger, or even only in the man on the cross, our hope would be in vain if he had stopped short. If he had stopped short, because the gospel hinges on the resurrection. The gospel hope hinges on the risen Christ, the exalted Savior. Not that he has or ever will change, but that if he did not rise, we would be without hope in this life and the next. But in fact, Paul says, he has been raised from the dead. And because he rose, our hope and our confidence is now in rising with him. And we will be raised with him in glory when he returns. He will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And this morning, this Advent, we celebrate all of this, that he came, that he accomplished, and that he is returning, that he was and is and is to come. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation 21. This is our future hope. This is the future reality that is sure. This is the future reality that will happen exactly as we will read it. This is the result of the Son of God taking on flesh and accomplishing all for us. This is the result of his sufferings and his glories and his ascension and his intercession and his ministry to us here and now and for eternity. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Hallelujah. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That is the glorious future that awaits you all who sit here covered by the righteousness of Christ, who are 
believing in him, trusting him, and loving him because of the love that he displayed in taking on flesh, there will come a day when our grieving and our tribulation and our sorrow will cease to exist. There will be no more crying, pain, tears, suffering. Nothing but inexpressible joy and rejoicing forever. Amen. That is the glory of the future advent, the return that ought to sustain us above all things in this life. We hope in his return. It's a reminder that we need so desperately to fix our eyes on his coming and to be together as we wait for him. The moment we step out of this fellowship, those tribulations and that grieving and suffering will most surely continue. For some of us, it's going on right now in this room as we sit here, and yet we're told we have great cause to rejoice. Amen. You guys rejoice with me this morning as you go to be with your families, beautiful as they may be. They are sinners. They are in need of a Savior. They are in need of hope. They are in need of the resurrection power that is in Christ Jesus alone. Our families need their eyes and their hope and their minds fixed on the return of Jesus Christ because if he returns and we are outside of him, his return will be the most frightening and horrifying and terrifying thing that anyone has ever experienced. And we do not want to see that for our loved ones. I know this is a challenge to me. Christmas time is the last time that we want to roll into the house and start talking about hell and judgment and fury and fire and wrath. But it must be done. We are his ambassadors. And the glory and the hope of Christ is so great that we cannot do anything else but speak of it. Amen. As we go forward from here, as we go to our families and friends this season, May we be diligent and vigilant, sober-minded, the realities that await, that he is coming back to judge this world, and he will judge in perfect righteousness, and those of us who have been washed by his blood will be ushered into a glory that our minds cannot conceive of, and we rest in that, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is truth, that every word you have spoken, whether audible by the mouth of your prophets, by your mouthpieces, God, every word that you have spoken is true and trustworthy, and you have demonstrated this throughout all of history, that what you speak will surely come to pass, and no one can annul what you have decreed. God, and you have decreed a day when our Lord, our Savior, our exalted Christ will return to this earth. We await that day with joyful, hopeful expectation, Father. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you humbled yourself to the point of taking on human flesh that by your stripes we are healed, that you bore our iniquities and our shame and our guilt on the cross, and that you rose 
in victorious glory that you ascended into heaven and you are now seated on your throne, that you are making intercession for us right now, that you have gone to prepare a place for us. And our tiny human minds cannot hope to understand what awaits us, God, but we trust you by faith. You have proven yourself to be faithful. We thank you because we are not, Lord. We stumble, we fall, we doubt, we grieve. Father, but our hope and our confidence is in you alone. Pray that you will fill every heart in this room with that rejoicing that is inexpressible in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I ask, Father, that you would work mightily by the power of your Spirit this Advent season to bring many to the knowledge of Christ and to the knowledge of your glory, that you would save them, Father, that you would rescue them from fire, that you would adopt them into your family and into your kingdom. We desire greatly to see this, and I ask that you would give us boldness and confidence to speak your word with love, gentleness, and humility as we go forth from here. We thank you for all. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys. Thank you.